Hi, this is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts really could not continue without your prayers and support. Between now and December 31st, please consider making a year-end tax-deductible gift to Discerning Hearts. We are a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. Your donation is fully tax-deductible to the extent permitted by law. Click the Donate button on DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue producing the type of spiritual formation programming you have come to expect from us, like those from Archbishop George Lucas, Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essef, and so many more. Please prayerfully consider supporting our mission, which is dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. Thank you, and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. For over 20 years, Dr. Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communications and education, including writing, editing, and teaching on a variety of topics related to church history, the papacy, the saints, and Catholic culture. He is the faculty chair at the Catholic Distance University, a senior fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or co-author of over 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and the best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Molokai and St. Kateri Tekakowitha. He also serves as a senior editor for the National Catholic Register and is a senior contributor to EWTN News. The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be with you, as always, Chris. Today we talk to a man we owe very much to in the Church, but we may not realize, especially in the West, and I'm speaking of St. John Damascene, or John of Damascus. Yeah, well, we have in, in John of Damascus, one of the last of the Fathers of the Church from the East, one of the last of the fathers of the church. He was uh, a monk, a theologian, a writer, a, a hymnographer. But when we think of him, we owe him a debt of gratitude on a couple of scores. His defense of the icons, second, his efforts to bring together sort of the summation of teaching up to that point in the life of the church. And then uh, he's referred to and honored as the doctor of the Assumption, for his devotion to the Blessed Mother, and especially his writings on the Assumption of Mary. So this is a, a, a man of immense achievement uh, who represents, you know, we've, we've talked about some of these earlier doctors of the Church. We think, for example, of Gregory I the Great, who was a kind of bridge between the ancient world and, and what became the Middle Ages. In, in John of Damascus, we have someone who is a figure represents the, the life of the church in sort of the post-Islamic conquest. And that's something uh, that uh, resonates very much today as well. Help us to get a sense of that time. What has occurred in the world in regards to Islam? Well, we've watched, as we've talked about uh, some of the doctors of the church, the, the great controversies in the Eastern Church, in Eastern Christianity. Well, in the centuries that followed those uh, great discussions and crises and controversies of the heresies, you had in the 7th century the titanic invasions of the East. You had the loss in that terrifying and depressing era 
perhaps as many as three to five hundred dioceses, all were swept away by this ocean, the sudden tsunami of Islam. So the Christians, who were still the majority population, found themselves in a radically different social, political, and religious situation than the one that they had enjoyed in the previous centuries. They were now an oppressed people who lived with legal and economic and certainly religious disabilities and could be persecuted at any given moment. In fact, we know that the friends of the family of John Damascene uh, suffered persecution at the whim of the sultans who controlled different parts of the Middle East. Uh, Christians could be arrested, tortured, exiled, and even executed uh, if they lived their faith too aggressively or just depending upon the uh, interests of uh, the Islamic rulers. What's interesting, though, is that the Muslims who were in charge, the different caliphates, understood that the Christians represented a legacy of learning and education and put that to use. In other words, Christians were sort of press-ganged into serving as the, the civil servants of their governments. And in that sense, they helped to administer the peaceful life of government and administration, even though they lived under, as I was saying, such severe disabilities. John's family emerged out of that whole culture. What would lead him into life of service in the church? Yeah, well, we know not too many details of his, his early life. Uh, the, the main source for his life is uh, written by one of the patriarchs of Jerusalem by the name of John of Jerusalem. The life itself, probably early Arab texts, Greek, and then distributed, has a lot of legends and stories, and some of them are probably more reliable than others. But we know that John was born into a family of some status, uh, probably known as the Mansur family, in Damascus, uh, in probably the third quarter of the 7th century, probably around 675 or 676. Damascus, of course, was a, was a great city in, in Syria. And his father was one of those people who had worked for the earlier Byzantine administration and, and then grew up and began working for the, the new regime of the Muslims. And he then was in a position to inherit that position and chose uh, to abandon that. Why? Because despite the fact that he was recognized for his obvious intelligence, he was called to something deeper. He was called to the life of prayer and service to the church. And it is believed that uh, he abandoned any thought of working at the Muslim court of the caliph who was in charge of Damascus and Syria and became a monk at uh, at the monastery of Marsaba, uh, just outside of Jerusalem, and that he was subsequently ordained a priest uh, probably around 735, which is not surprising, would be not too many years before his death, but after many years of prayerful contemplation. Interestingly, his education uh, came largely at the hands of a one-time Christian slave, a monk by the name of Cosmas, who was purchased from slavery by John's father, who realized 
uh, one day when he was supposedly walking through the slave market of Damascus that was filled with Christian slaves. Imagine how awkward and difficult that must have been for the Christians of the city. Uh, he recognized in this rather decrepit uh, Christian who was being sold as a slave that here was a man of immense learning and bought his uh, freedom and established him as the main person who taught uh, John and also a friend of John who's an orphan uh, who became uh, the a future bishop himself. And thanks to the, the genius, the extent of Cosmos's learning, John became an expert in music, in theology, in astronomy, in geometry, uh, probably also in some of the languages that uh, he came to be able to use. So it is that providential quality of a one-time slave who had such an impact on John's life and who probably also uh, began instilling him in him the idea of becoming a monk and really dedicating his entire life to Christ in the form of a monastic setting. He's been called the doctor of Christian art, not because it's about paintings or images per se that's done by the artist, that, while that's an aspect of it, but more because of the nature of God and how he revealed himself to us. And that is so important in this period, given what was occurring in his area with the rise of Islam. Yes. John is almost the, the fulcrum around which the church's defense, especially in the East, and her understanding of icons and authentic veneration he really is the pivot. And I say that because if we understand sort of the context of what was happening, we had, as we've been talking about, these Islamic armies that had swept across the whole of the Near East, the Middle East, and Africa. And the result was this, this cultural influence. There was an effort on the part of the Byzantines to establish some sort of a rapprochement, a rapport with the growing numbers of Islamic populations, even within the boundaries of what was the Byzantine Empire. And the Muslims have a ban, what they would argue is a biblical ban, on graven images. As a result they banned the use of almost all images as idolatry. There was in this outreach a movement within the Byzantine Empire. It became known as iconoclasm. What it basically means, what was known as also the iconoclast controversy, the breaking of the images. The iconoclasts are themselves breakers of images. They argued that icons, the depiction of the saints, of the Trinity, of Christ, of the Blessed Mother, was a form of idolatry, and therefore uh, was a violation of the biblical ban on graven images. And the movement itself gained traction in the Byzantine Empire under Emperor Leo III, known as the Azorian, who in 726 declared all images, icons included, to be idolatrous. 
as I was saying, his decision was politically motivated since the decree permitted greater involvement of the state in the ecclesiastical life of the church. It also, in his way of thinking, made it easier to achieve the conversion of Jewish and Muslim populations as it removed what was for them a long-standing impediment to the embrace of Christianity. Now imagine, much as we saw with the Aryan controversy, the hostile reaction this had. Icons were extremely important to the citizens of the empire. And there was widespread discontent in the lands of the Byzantines. Uh, and there was formal effort to declare icons to be abolished. And John Damascene understood the significance of this. He understood what was at stake here, uh, what was meant by true veneration, what was meant by worship, true worship, and it certainly was not of icons. And as a result of that, uh, he composed three important defenses of the veneration of icons and systematically explained in the most important of these was his first, which was the a treatise against those who destroy or uh, uh, attack the, the holy images. He resisted the emperor, but he also employed a, a way of writing about the images that anyone could understand and appreciate. And as a result, uh, in the lands of the Byzantine Empire, he became something of a hero to those who loved the icons. Icons, for some, are a different way of praying with the word. The icon artist is actually a writer of an icon. Yes. There's a whole different dimension, the expression of what's occurring there. With That's absolutely true. With the, the holy images, the, the best way to put it is that John, in his discussion on the holy images, said, and this is a great quote, he says, I do not worship matter. I worship the God of matter who became matter for my sake and deigned to inhabit matter, who worked out my salvation through matter. I will not cease from honoring that matter which works my salvation. I venerate it, though not as God. How could God be born out of lifeless things, he says, and if God's body is God by union, it is immutable. The nature of God remains the same as before. The flesh created in time is quickened by a logical and reasoning soul. And so what we're seeing is uh, a couple of key elements here. There's the first, the defense of what is authentic veneration of images. The other, though, is, and this is even deeper, was not just the idea of images, but also on the important beauty of created order of matter itself and the veneration of icons relates as well to the veneration of the relics of saints but it also points to the the beauty of nature and part of the visible creation of nature and, and this is something that um, in his beautiful meditation on John Damascene by Pope Benedict XVI, 
we see all of those different elements coming together in John's work, in, in his discourses, uh, in the defense of the icons. And for, for Christians, this was essential to understand and appreciate fully. We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essif, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. With St. Ignatius we pray. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within thy wounds, hide me. Suffer me not to be separated from thee. From the malignant enemy, defend me. In the hour of my death, call me, and bid me come to thee, that with thy saints I may praise thee, forever and ever. Amen. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these videos, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks, and God bless. We now return to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. In that moment when God took flesh and became man, Christ became that image of God to us. And so our appreciation of his entering into creation and manifesting himself thus, that changed how we as Christians look at the world. And that would be very different than how Islam look, looks at the world, as um, the Jews looked at the world, uh, looked at God, as a matter of fact. And so that there's something very significant going on here, isn't there? Very much so. Yeah, uh, Pope Benedict framed it perfectly in his discussion. He says that it, it's an optimistic contemplation of nature. In other words, you're seeing in visible creation the good, the beautiful, the true. In other words, uh, what, what he describes as Christian optimism. And it's not a pessimistic view of nature. For example, you, you had this long-standing heresy in the church of the Manichaeans, which sort of divided the world into corrupt and evil nature uh, of material things, and then what was uh, a good and pure spirit. For the Christian, we have to understand created order, created nature, as a very good thing. We are made in the image and likeness of God. 
matter itself, creation itself, was made by God. What's interesting, too, is that, as Benedict points out, we have to take into account the wound inflicted on human nature by the freedom of choice uh, that was misused by, by man and all of the, as he puts it, the discord that derived from it. However, we see the need, and this is expressed beautifully by John Damascene, that nature, in which the goodness and beauty of God reflected, was wounded by our fault, but was strengthened and renewed by the Son of God, who, what did he do? He took flesh. And John explains that it was necessary for nature to be strengthened and renewed and for the path of virtue to be indicated and effectively taught that leads away, he says, from corruption and towards the eternal, towards eternal life. And so what happened? That, as he puts it so eloquently, on the horizon of history, the great sea of love that God bears toward man, it is, as he says, we see on one side the beauty of creation and on the other the destruction wrought by the fault of man, but we see in Christ, who descends to renew nature, the sea of love that God has for man. He says that the Creator and the Lord fought for this creation, transmitting to it his teaching by example. And so the Son of God, in the form of God, lowered the skies, he says, and descended to his servants. So we see that interaction of God's love, God's creation, and then we have, through the incarnation, the renewal of the beauty of creation that God made. And all of that, in a way, becomes perfectly visible in the icon. So we, do, so we see in the, the icon the image of that which we worship, but we do not worship that of how it was made. At a celebration of the Mass, for example, we may see the deacon carry in with great reverence the Gospels and place them. Incense is brought forward, and it's venerated because it contains the Word of God. We acknowledge that this contains something very sacred. It's an encounter with the Holy. An icon, especially a sacred icon, is held in that same type of reverence. It contains that same type of sacred transmission. So it is venerated. So the actions of the iconoclasts, when they went through and they were smashing and destroying that, would have been as assaulting to the sensibilities as if somebody were to take our sacred gospel books and smash them and burn them. I mean, it would it would have that same kind of effect inside, wouldn't it, Matthew? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they were rejecting uh, the, the beauty of God's creation, but they were also so completely confusing uh, the difference between worship and veneration. And uh, as John went at some pains to help the average Christian to understand the difference between worship and veneration, the first is offered to God. The second, veneration, makes use of an image to address uh, the one whom the image represents. There, there are a couple of interesting points in that regard. Uh, you know, uh, first, he, he reminds, he tells his readers you know, that 
nothing that is created can be adored in the place of God. Rightly so, God prohibited the making of idols because it is impossible to make an image of that which is the immeasurable, the invisible God. Yet at the same time, under the Old Covenant, God did command images to be made. Think, for example, of the angels that were carved onto the Ark of the Covenant. These were not idols because these images were not worshipped. And yet what did they do? They, they helped lead the mind toward the divine, toward that which created them. But he then also explained that a God can be portrayed because he took upon himself flesh through the incarnation. And you know, John points out that if we attempt to make an image of the invisible God, that would be sinful. If we made images of men and believed them to be gods, it would be ludicrous, but it would also be impious, and that should be prohibited. But he said, we don't do either of these. We are not mistaken if we make the image of God incarnate, who was on the earth in the flesh, he, was, he lived and was associated with men, and he assumed the nature, feeling, form, and color, John writes, of our flesh. And then finally, he says that uh, we do not worship icons. Why? Because if we, if we go back to the actual word latria of worship, that belongs to God alone, but we venerate. There, there are different words for venerate. There, there's dulia, uh, but there's also proskinesis, which is the veneration, which is the honor that we show for the image of that which is depicted. In other words, uh, he, he points to the veneration given in Scripture to the rod of Aaron, to the jar of manna, and even to holy places like Mount Sinai or Golgotha. So in other words, to, to go back to uh, that fundamental point, the difference between worship and veneration, the first is only offered to God above all things. Veneration, on the other hand, can make use of an image to address the one whom the image represents. To bring it to today, there are many Catholic Christians who encounter those Protestants, potentially, that may say that in some way our use of statues or sacred images, not just uh, in our churches but also in our homes, is somehow a, a, they criticize that. And that's, again, part of the work of St. John John Damascene Mm -hmm. in helping us to be able to articulate that important presence for us. With the icons, with the statues, with the images, we are helping the mind, the heart, to leap beyond matter. But at the same time, we're putting matter to use for the greater glory of God. Now, there's a, a way that the John himself used of explaining this, that suppose a pagan is trying to understand the faith. Well, one of the ways you can do that is to place him before the icon, to help him see the difference between a pagan idol that he thinks is itself a god and an icon that is an image of the true god. 
And the difference, obviously, is very significant. But at the same time, we're also looking at the beauty of created matter, of using our talents and putting those talents to use in shaping matter, and then understanding that, and as, as John Damascene put it, uh, an opened book that reminds us of God. And we go back to his quote of scripture, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Flesh is matter, and it is created. And as John says, I salute matter, and I approach it with reverence, and I worship that through which my salvation has come. I honor it, he says, not as God, but because it is full of divine grace and strength. And so it, we go back to that fundamental optimism of the Christian in the contemplation of nature, of again, seeing in visible creation, the hand of God, that which is good, that which is beautiful, that which is true, and that which became an instrument of our salvation, and that we can then put to use ourselves in remembering and venerating that which that matter comes to represent. So, Dr. Bunsen, we've just begun to unpack the great teachings of St. John of Damascus. We will have to continue in another conversation because there's so much more. Any final thoughts? Yes, well, as, as we've been discussing, uh, one of the hallmarks of the, the, the great doctors of the Church is to help the Church to deepen her understanding of some aspect of, of theology, of our contemplation of God. And that is certainly what John did, and uh, this is a conversation to be uh, continued uh, on the icons. But we can see how John really does deserve the title of doctor, if for no other reason than his very defensive icons and a deeper understanding of the incarnation because of it. Thank you so much, Dr. Matthew Bunce. Great to be with you, Chris. Looking forward to our next episodes. You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this program, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. 